Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, your weekly discussion of motoring news. This is episode 481 on Tuesday, the 5th of July, 2022. Hello, I'm Andrew. And I'm not Alan, I'm Alex. And this week we'll be uh, getting energised by quite a bit of charging news, looking up what the German is for size does matter, and we'll be watching how fast somebody can race in a cloud. But first, with no follow-up, we're going straight into the news and beginning with a breaking story that uh, authorities in Germany have raided offices of Hyundai and Kia over claims that they've fitted more than 210,000 diesel vehicles with illegal defeat devices. I mean, these these are terms that you may remember from Dieselgate uh, and the kind of <laughs> unfolding world of pain that that's kind of uh, resulted in. Long-suffering listeners will remember Dieselgate. <laughs> <laughs> How can we forget? And yeah, basically what they do is they enable the engine performance to vary to kind of suit test scenarios and uh, get through the kind of homologation tests that are required before these vehicles are brought to market, but then don't meet the results on on the road. It's believed, and as I say, this is a breaking story, so there are not a huge amount of details available at the moment, that this, it involves technology from Bosch and Delphi Technology, which is now, I believe, part of BorgWarner. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight properties in Germany and Luxembourg. Hyundai and Kia have not really commented. They've said they're cooperating with the investigation, and uh, I guess we kind of have to wait and see what comes out of it. Yeah, Bosch was involved in the Volkswagen Dieselgate as well, so yes. I think yeah. there's probably a link there. There's no more news on that, so we don't know how involved either of the or any of the companies in, in with the story are. So as soon as we get more details, we will bring that in follow-up in following episodes. Right, I'm going to keep us in Europe, though. And this is the news that EU lawmakers have actually backed the ban on new fossil fuel cars from 2035, or the effective ban. What they are saying is that they need to reduce... CO2 emissions using 1990 levels as the basis, but they they need to reduce them down to 100% by 2035. Now, they want 55% reduction by 2030. So the 2035 is, you know, another 45% further from vehicles, that is. There are a couple of caveats to this. One is that e-fuels have been given an opportunity to for a bit longer to prove that they are a possible viable alternative, which if they can be made economically and at net zero, which I think is the important bit of it as well, Mm. then the EU lawmakers will allow them to be used on internal combustion engine vehicles. But it has to be uh, zero CO2 at the tailpipe. So, uh, yeah, that's quite a trick i think it kind of i mean the electrification thing kind of feels inevitable now there's such a groundswell behind it and all the sort of supply chains are all changing and kind of gearing up for this you know, getting gigafactories rolling out all across europe i know you hate that term sorry i do uh <laughs> but but the, the infrastructure is being put in place for this and i mean e-fuels to me feel like a really important part potentially of that process of decarbonization but yeah. people who say that it's going to save the combustion engine i'm fairly skeptical about that no, I feel it's more of a transition technology. Yes. Uh, yeah. Whilst electrical or possibly green hydrogen, again, please don't write in and complain about green hydrogen. <laughs> I know all the foibles and the pitfalls and how that isn't really a thing at the moment as well. But I, I 
as we say regularly on the show, I think there needs to be multiple options because we don't all just do the same thing. Vehicles do such a wide range of things for a wide range of people and tasks that there needs to be different solutions for each of those. There's a lot of crossover, don't get me wrong, but we do need to understand that they're in specific instances they will be used in a particular way, which means that, say, hydrogen is more appropriate in that particular instance, but it's not appropriate for me to run the shops in. This is it. I mean, cars kind of already suit, uh, already increasingly well suited to battery power, They're becoming more and more versatile electric vehicles. Yeah, it's it's where you've got problem areas such as aviation and marine, where it's and heavy duty vehicles, where you know long range heavy duty trucks, where you may find that e fuels has got a, a more natural home than in passenger cars and some of the sort yep. of light vans. The technology is already there for those who kind of don't necessarily need it. So cars and I think cars and vans and well, some vans are going to be sort of further down the queue than these kind of really heavy duty vehicles that we need these fuels for if they're going to be produced economically. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. I did also see, I just need to say, because I mentioned this on Twitter this morning when we were recording this, that I did see one report in one article that was reproduced twice that there was talk of banning selling a second-hand ICE vehicles, but I have not seen that reported anywhere else. And it does feel, and this is confirmed through conversations with several people on Twitter, does feel like somebody has mentioned this as a possible option. And the way it was written, it's as though it's going, it, it, the EU want this to happen, and that probably isn't the case. But we will keep an eye on that, because that has obviously massive implications for everybody and also you know more detail needs to be known on that because how realistic that is Mm. is questionable but anyway we'll move on to something closer to home (laughs) yes back in the uk the government is launching what's going to be called the road safety investigation branch so it's it's similar to kind of organizations that you've got set up for air and uh, maritime accident investigation basically it follows a consultation which got widespread support and the idea is it won't assign blame after accidents so the police will still investigate them but it will look at why these accidents are happening and look for trends with a view to kind of improving road safety Mm-hmm. That process will also involve looking at self-driving vehicles, e-scooters and electric vehicles. And I mean, actually, I think it's one of these things where there's so much changing at the moment that it's actually a really valid thing to have. I think if, if, was, if there was ever a time to kind of roll out a department like this, this would be the time to do it. Absolutely. And I, and I also believe that it's the right thing to have anyway, similar to how, for example, we've, we've mentioned it many times, the US version, mm-hmm. which investigates certain or investigate incidents and then report back and say, right, the manufacturers need to change this, this, and this in their vehicles in order to prevent that, but also talk about road infrastructure uh, and that sort of thing. So there's so much involved in all these incidents that it's great that someone is going to be independently looking at it Mm. from a higher level as well as close down into detail to see there's patterns because there will be. There will be patterns in there. There will be certain things that come to light that people will have known individually, but w- there's never been anyone coordinating that information to then go, oh, hang on, mm. we're getting a sharp rise in these incidents happening with this other particular road user. Yeah, people without a horse in the race, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Really important. 
Right, I'm going to take us to Nottingham now, and there is news that they are installing some wireless charging points for taxis. The City Council received £930,000 from the Office of Zero Emissions Vehicles to install this technology and have this uh, project. They're calling it Electric Taxis Project. or Sorry, the Wireless Charging for Electric Taxis Project. Snappy title, that. <laughs> uh, and they're going to be using the London Electric Vehicle Company taxis and also Nissan Dynamo electric taxis. This really does feel like if, if people can get the wireless charging sorted, it really feels like it's a huge, that'd be too cliched, game changer for electric vehicles because then the infrastructure impact visibly and wires and the problems that people have in dealing with all that can go away. Yeah, especially in towns and when you've got kind of depots and things like that. I mean, the one place I've always thought wireless charging would be brilliant is for um, highways vehicles and you know, police vehicles and highways agency vehicles where they're on the side of the road parked yeah. and they may, if you have a hybrid, for example, or, or, or even an electric vehicle uh, involved in those roles, it can sort of sit there and wait and charge and they don't have to then get out of the car and, mm-hmm. and unplug it before they go. They just and you know, start up and leave. But yeah, I mean, I think the problem that wireless charging's kind of had is that it, it, it lurked in the background, didn't it, early on when it was yeah, slower rates of charging were, the, were more normal. Yeah, people couldn't get the tech to work. So it just... Yeah, exactly. And it's expensive as well. And you kind of have to retrofit things at the vehicle side as well as, as yeah. you know, yeah, the, the infrastructure in the ground. So um, yeah, I think fleets, uh, taxis and fleets are going to be where you'll see sort of this sort of technology first, really. Yeah, and then I can see it rolling out into car parts, particularly, say, supermarkets and stuff. If they don't have to take up or create extra wide bays and they can get more cars in a car park, mm. that's something they'll want to do for sure. Hopefully, they can, people can get this to, or companies can get this to work and then it's rolled out because then, um, you know, it's on your driveway. You know, maybe you get it installed on your driveway and something like that rather than a, a wall charger. BMW was offering systems a few years ago, but I don't think it. I don't think it made it to the UK. There was only two companies that were originally really far down the line, and I think one of them bought the other one out because Qualcomm was involved. Yes. Yeah, uh, and I can't remember whether Qualcomm bought or what. I know they were bought out by the other company, so I think the focus has now returned to it and trying to make it work as a thing. So, yeah, if we if we don't have to have you know, bollards, cables, and all the rest of it, then please, let's have that. <laughs> let's have that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But why don't you take us to York and talk about some good work on that front at this moment in time, though? Yeah, sticking with charging, York has opened the first of what will be four hyperhubs, which will include 50 kilowatt and 175 kilowatts. They'll be council-owned, and they'll include 50 and 175 kilowatt chargers. The first one is opened at Monk's Cross, and there will be two more opening before the end of the year and it's quite a sensible scheme this i mean they, they, so that all of the sites have got a, a solar canopy and some will have static storage which then means they can offer cheaper costs to, to users for those who are not familiar with how much the cost of motorway charging has gone up 25p per kilowatt hour at the moment is very very cheap i mean that's that's <laughs> less than what a lot of networks were charging a year ago before energy became like an obtainium <laughs> 
they've done that. So they've sold, they've sold the, one of the problems in terms of costs. They're also fitting uh, large grid connections so you can have lots of vehicles charging at the same time without a power drop-off. The whole scheme is kind of focused on which customers they want to attract. So they looked at kind of saying, where are the shortages? Where, where are the gaps? What do we need to address? And they've decided that they want to look at residents who don't have the ability to park off-road, commuters, visitors, and tourists. And then they've got networks of other slower chargers dotted around which will offer slightly cheaper rates to support yeah to, to kind of fill the gaps i think actually york generally has approached this kind of clean transport thing very well very sensibly i think you, mm. you think the same it's uh yeah the, the way that they tackled the their sort of clean air zone charging idea is has been almost remarkable in the way that they appear to have involved the locals and got buy-in when you see the schemes announced for York, it's very rare you see on social media, which I know amplifies mm. negativity because that's its job, but you very rarely see anybody going, oh, well, this is, they just haven't listened to us. It's ridiculous. Why did they bother, etc." Unlike other certain cities we could mention, <clears throat> Oxford, Bristol, <clears throat> <laughs> uh, who seem to, regardless of what anybody says, will do whatever they want. <laughs> But I really like the way they've done this. They they appear to have tackled it properly, looking at information and reacting to that information to help people rather than to say, you can't do something. It's like, how can we enable your change or for you to change your habits and your lifestyle as easy as possible? And that's mm. got to be the way is to make it easy for people. If you make it easy for them, it it makes it easier for them to change. Uh, <laughs> I can honestly speak in English, trust me. <laughs> but I, I really believe that instead of beating people with sticks, let's encourage, let's, you know, show what's possible. It's I'm so bored of, no, this is the only way, must do it this way, otherwise you're just evil and all this. Well, that doesn't get anybody on side. That just makes them begrudgingly have to get involved. So let's encourage people properly. And I really do admire how York are going about this. Yeah, it really looks like they've looked at the pain points and, and kind of tackled them one by one, doesn't it? They've really thought about how they're going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Right, talking of tourists being looked after, I'm going to take us down to Cornwall, I wish, and the news that uh, Swarco Smart Charging have done a deal with Cornwall Council to deliver EV charging points across the country. Uh, the county, sorry. Um, they want to be a country. Not so long ago, I think it was three or four shows ago, I did mention to Alan... And he said it would all be fine in Cornwall because I thought it's going to be interesting this summer down there how many people can charge their cars <laughs> because mm. of the number of Middle Englanders that will now have EVs. So <laughs> this is this is seen as a problem. The council know it, so they're trying to address it. They've got, I think it's a four-year deal. Mm. I think they, yes. they've signed up for, so they're going to be installing these over the next four years and running them. Again, you know, anything that helps encourage, because the thing is, if they're installed properly, it'll encourage the local residents to change, just as we were talking about with York. It'll help them make a, a change, those who can. Uh, and, that, and that's the thing that has to be remembered with all this, is the people that can make the change, because it's still an expensive investment to go down an EV route, because it's you know more often than not we're talking about new vehicles rather than second hand because there isn't that supply yet there's two sides to this isn't there i mean they're, 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 I, 
invite Swalker to come and have a look at the Welsh charging infrastructure and see what they can make of that. Oh, there is one, is there? <laughs> <laughs> Just about. The thing, the, thing with, the thing with this kind of rapid charging side of things is that... Um, it's not just about new vehicles, but if you're supporting people who are buying, say, a, an eight, ten-year-old Nissan Leaf, where mm. it may only have eighty to hundred miles of range, if you put in a couple of charging hubs around the place, then you're, you're then providing infrastructure for people who can't necessarily charge off-road to go out and join the rest of the country's infrastructure to go further. Yeah, a vehicle like that might be absolutely fine for doing most of your local stuff. But when you want to go further, you want to be able to link into the other, you know, to the rest of the network and. As you say, it's 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 about supporting uptake, but also I think it's quite important for supporting pe- people, to ch- you know, choosing older vehicles as well. Yep, absolutely. Swarco is the back office operator for Charge Place Scotland as well, so that's a, a a good good solid network up there. Yeah, obviously it's been a few years since you used it, but it was really handy, and the way it was done was seemed well done, which doesn't sound like a thing that happens or is said often of Scottish government issues at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but our our Scottish correspondent is actually going, just transferring to be our US correspondent at the moment, so uh, we'll have to wait on his comments on that. <laughs> <laughs> but talking of charging, but um, more about uh, people charging from home. Yeah, absolutely. So a few months ago, the government announced that it was going to introduce some new regulations that would come into force from the end of June. Now, previously there had been some requirements placed on charge points that uh, receive grant funding from the Office of Zero Emission Vehicles. But now that most households don't qualify for that funding, these now apply to all units that are being installed. Those came into, into force last week, uh, and it requires them to all have a data connection, the ability to accurately record usage in terms of time and, and energy. Those are kind of familiar, but they're more, they're, they're the requirements are stricter in terms of their ability to do that. But what's really kind of got people talking about it is that they come pre-programmed to avoid certain charging periods and they will be able to randomly defer start of charging by 10 minutes or up to 30 minutes in some in some occasions so that you don't then end up coming off these peak hours and then the whole of the UK charging network at home all comes on at, at the same time mm-hmm. but that means they'll stop me charging Alex ah! well this is the other yeah <laughs> the, the data connection also enables utility companies to turn off to pause your charging for some periods of time if there's kind of massive amounts of load on the grid. The idea of this is that you are lessening the requirements to, to add loads of expensive extra infrastructures than to the electrical grid in the UK. But of course, people didn't really read the regulations and got all panicky about it and thought that this was going to be ways to uh, charge people more for charging at home, that it was going to mean that the government had full control over when you charge. All of this sort of stuff all got kind of thrown about on social media last year. Actually, everything it, everything in it is overridable. You can set your own charging schedules if the ones that, that are preset into the unit don't suit you you can override delays if you need to start charging immediately this was all in the original document but people seem to have missed it and the idea is that you can then use this obviously as a charge off peak which then is significantly cheaper and you offset the costs the additional costs that the unit will require to kind of have this onboard data connection all these you know all these systems on board now, Jordan Bronson, who's the co-founder uh, of MyEnergy, has written a really good column explaining what these actually mean for electric vehicle owners and kind of why it's not a reason to panic. Lots of really detailed information in there kind of discussing what this really means. And it's, it's run on transport and energy. So it's, it's very much worth a read. There's lots of analysis in terms of what the actual costs are and uh, where this is all going. 
I will leave that in her capable hands to explain it. It's, it's a good, it's a good read. Yep. Link as ever in the show notes. Right. I'm going to take us to Aston Martin. And last week, Autocar had an exclusive article saying Aston Martin was suddenly looking for money and it was probably going to be from Saudi Arabia. This is only a couple of months ago, I think. Well, not long ago, certainly within my memory, so it can't be that long ago, that uh, Stroll came out and said, no, we don't need money. That's absolutely ridiculous. That's a horrific lie. Stop lying about us. That's awful. And then, then the news came out that they were looking for money, and then Aston Martin came out and went, well, everything's fine. You don't have to drop our share price because we've got full order books. Everything's exactly as we said it was going to be this year. Don't worry. <laughs> So, um, so the, and they're saying that their sports cars are sold out into 2023. So everyone just calm down. Don't worry. Doesn't really say that they don't need more money though. Mm. So, uh, it just feels a bit like Aston Martin being modern Aston Martin, really, which is disappointing because I'd hope this would have calmed down a little bit. Yeah, Although with their their fun. recent signings or re-signings of um, the key team members, then I think they're going to be going in the right direction. It's just whether people can have the patience or the investors have the patience. Of course they don't, but investors have the patience to ride out what is difficult for everybody in the motoring industry at the moment, supply issues particularly. I really am seeing DBXs around here and for ages I wasn't, but you know they are regularly here. So they are getting into people's hands and they seem to want them. Uh, fingers crossed, Aston Martin's all right. Please be all right. Yeah. <laughs> Can we just have a couple of quiet months? <laughs> just... <laughs> you wouldn't wouldn't know what was going on. It's a shame, isn't it? It's it's uh, kind of get get into a position where you can keep your head above water, and then just things out of your control just come along and, and mess everything up. Yeah, I I have to say, whilst it is very easy to sit on the sidelines and take a pop, which I do regularly. At car manufacturers, I am so glad I am not trying to make a car at the moment because of the the pressures from all angles seem pretty horrific. <laughs> mm, absolutely, yeah. Talking of pressures, actually, uh, and SUVs. <laughs> yeah, speaking of SUVs, Jalopnik is reporting uh, that a court in Frankfurt has ruled that an SUV driver who shot a red light should be charged twice the normal fine because of the increased risk that his vehicle poses to pedestrians compared to a smaller car. I mean, this is an incredibly complex issue, not least of which because SUVs are uh, absolutely seem to be at the spearhead of kind of getting everyone to electric vehicles. Everything seems to be electric and SUV shaped at the moment. But basically what the court is arguing is that the, the boxy build, the poor visibility, and also the excess weight of the vehicle, which is a very interesting part of the ruling, presented more of a, a problem for you know, a safety issue for pedestrians and other road users than smaller vehicles. So he said a one-month suspension and a $365, I haven't converted that back to euros, uh, fine as opposed to the usual 200 And it is an interesting one. I think this is interesting. It's starting to get recognised and discussed in Europe, especially given there's a kind of, there is a lot of anti-SUV sentiment from various corners of commentators and so on on the on the motoring industry mm. obviously suvs are tested for pedestrian protection as part of yeah. year and cap rules and so on but i mean there are issues that have been looked at in the us in terms of compatibility and crash tests with other vehicles due to the higher impact point so where the crash structures are in these vehicles compared to sort of lower models and I think it could be interesting seeing what sort of precedent this sets going forward. I am particularly interested with the, the comments of any impacts because NCAP 
obviously do the, a lot of testing on this side of things. And it would be worth judging or, or comparing the NCAP pedestrian or impacts, just whether it's pedestrians or whether it's other vehicles, how they, they match up against different vehicles. Because obviously, if a vehicle is taller, then there is a better chance against a smaller one, which is the point you were making, of it missing the crash protection. Mm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned America because so often we see these pictures of their uh, pickup trucks which just fall through a loophole and I can't see any politician changing that. Uh, I think it must be nearly up there with gun control as far as a, a touch point not to go near for a politician mm-hmm. um, really, or do anything really meaningful. But you can see that they, they come up to grown adults' chests, if not higher, the front of those things. And you just think, well, that, that obviously will make a difference compared to just a, a normal car uh, or a hatchback or something. So uh, that's interesting. The weight one is particularly interesting because electric vehicles obviously have that problem right now that batteries make the vehicles heavier. So if you're going to start mentioning weight, you mm. then have to start looking at all cars. I I always feel this with SUVs. I, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of SUVs. I understand that uh, why many people like them on particular aspects. But you, if you single out that one portion, then you have to look at all vehicles because there's crossover of aspects of that into other vehicles. So it starts to get really tricky at that point, I think. But I can see it being brought over here in terms of a case coming up and people going, well, that giant SUV, as they are always put when somebody's angry about them, <laughs> that giant SUV should pay more, whether it's to use the road or whatever, or because of the risk, or start grading things that way. We know France are doing a, they've got a weight thing when it comes to tax, haven't they? Mm. Norway did as well, which plug-in hybrids were exempted from and it created a market overnight for them over there. Right. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how this gets picked up and whether it gets jumped on. And obviously no manufacturer is desperately trying to make their car a five-ton car, <laughs> no mm-hmm. matter what shape it is, because they know of efficiencies and all the rest of it. But things are moving. Legislation and rules are moving quicker than technology can keep up at the moment, which makes a huge difference mm. from normally where it is is the tech is way ahead so uh, yeah i think um, it's it's yeah. kind of what what do you what are you focusing on i think that's what they kind of have to realize you know have to to, to work out with this so you say if you're tackling the weight thing then you you can't just tar all suvs with the same brush i mean there's a you know there's a c-segment kind of cash sized suv better or worse than say a seven series yeah you know, if you yeah are you looking at the shape of the frame? I mean, your, your cash car is not like getting hit like hit by a brick wall, like a you know an American pickup truck would be. Yeah, as you say, your head is level with the bonnet of the car. Yeah, yeah, the cash car over here, or, and 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 its competitors are designed to kind of uh, shield pedestrians as much as possible from the impact. They tend to do quite well as well because the engine's much lower compared to the bonnet line than in a lot of yeah. a lot of cars. But uh, not all SUVs are equal. <laughs> we we used to have a a Renault Kadjar, and it was actually lighter than the Megan estate that you could buy at the same time. <laughs> it's it's very easy to kind of demonize SUVs on weight and inefficiency and 
you know load space and all the rest of it but you just can't it the term suv is is as broad as the term non-suv in terms yeah. of the kind of vehicles that it includes so what you know i mean i would imagine this guy's probably getting penalized because he's in something very very large he's probably in a, a large you know kind of dre segment large size suv as opposed to something small like a mocker or a or a captor It'd yeah be interesting if he was <laughs> <laughs> that small, but I don't think. But it was actually noted as well that it's based on his past convictions, which weren't actually detailed in the story. Mm. Yeah, so, so maybe there may be a bit form. of both. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. I'm going to move us on to Caterham, and they have a new CEO. Graham McDonald has retired after ten years, and Bob Lashley, who was the ex uh, sports car boss at Nissan, has taken over. That is good news for. One of our few UK-only companies still still manufacturing in the UK. Thank, thank you, everyone that does. <laughs> so keep going for as much as you can. That's going to be interesting to see how, I mean, it really, it's like Morgan. It's been fascinating watching how Morgan is tackling the change in the motoring landscape and how Caterham is going to do that because it, it looks like they've made a viable enough business to not lurch from panic to panic so what is what is going to to happen because they're they're developing an ev obviously you're going to be working closely with suppliers on that so i'm fascinated how when we were just talking about weight there and ev batteries fascinated how they can keep the caterumness whatever that is the magic that is caterum when it becomes an ev so hmm He's got a lot on his plate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What an interesting time to be joining a car maker like that. Yeah, it is. We've got our last piece of the first part of the show, but an important one. Yes, uh, in brief, really, this one, but very, but still very important. The UK Parliament Transport Select Committee has launched a call for evidence for an inquiry into self-driving vehicles. So it's looking at kind of scrutinising how they're developed and deployed, and they're taking evidence until uh, 22nd of August. So just looking at how they'll be used, kind of how the trial, current trials are going, what this means for infrastructure and so on. We talk a lot on this about kind of the importance of getting this right. Mm. So it is absolutely vital that the right people that, who understand this technology come forward and help to kind of ensure that it's rolled out safely, correctly, appropriately. We basically, we're, we would encourage everyone to have a role in this and kind of contribute to this uh, inquiry. The link will be in the show notes, of course. Help the politicians to pop the hype bubbles and see what the reality is, what the consequences of decisions are when it comes to technology being suggested um, that's being claimed as used. And if it is, well, then there are massive consequences to that sort of thing so please do click on the link in the show notes as alex said do have a read through or around the issues and particularly if you've got a specific issue to do with this that maybe people haven't thought of or people don't you don't see people talking about do bring it to the committee's attention because they don't know they are members of parliament who have other things to do and are trying to help shape the transport ideas of things and advise or suggest things to the government so anything that we can do to help them understand better we're being given an opportunity to say something so say something it's i think what i'm trying to say here (laughs) yeah 
yeah, don't don't then stand by in two years' time, three years' time, and kind of go, well, why didn't they do it this way? If you haven't pitched in, it's, it's yeah. an opportunity to kind of make sure that this gets done properly, and it's really important to make sure that we do. Absolutely. Right, that is the end of the first part. Yes, that means it's Guilt Minute, the quick break in the show where we ask for a tad of financial support to keep the lights on and the hosting running. If you feel the Motoring Podcast is worth a small consideration every month, then you can become a patron. There are different levels of patron, including different levels of commitment from us to you, including being able to watch the show recorded live normally. We also have a small range of merchandise available from our website and spring store, from stickers to mugs and t-shirts. If you don't have any spare cash, and we completely understand that, particularly at the moment, then you can help us by following for free from a podcast player to receive every show as they're released. And then by liking and rating the show in whatever way your podcast supplier allows you to do that. And if you've done all that, and we know there are many of you that have and do that, then we thank you very much. And the last thing we can ask you to do is to recommend us to your friends and family, please. Right. Into the second half of the show, and we go into not really motorsport, it's, it's going fast. And it is the news the, the great news, actually, that Bloodhound LSR it's not dead. We muttered about this a few weeks ago, but there's an excellent interview in the Sunday Times Driving, the link in the show notes, where Will John speaks to the current CEO of Bloodhound and has a nice chat about the possibilities of the future and how they're actually looking to become the first carbon zero land speed record holder. This is great news. Please do read it. And if you know people who are sitting on some cash and looking for something interesting to do, point them towards Bloodhound. <laughs> yes. No, it's nice to kind of, I mean, I think, I think what they're saying is, is right. That if you can't kind of tackle some of these problems, improve them in uh, an extreme scenario like this, then uh, where can you? Yep. Yep. So do read that. There is no new, new car news this week. The stuff that did come out came out far too late for us to include in the show, unfortunately. So we will put that back to next week. That means it takes us to our recommendations for you listeners. And it's, we'll start with the lunchtime read. Yes, this this week's lunchtime read is from Evo, and uh, it's a touchy subject with car enthusiasts at the moment, as it's looking <laughs> at the importance of grills as part of uh, vehicles' overall design. It's a really interesting piece. So it kind of is rooted in the historic importance of these, uh, you know, of, of the grill as a as a design element of a car, which kind of started back in the forties uh, in the states, and kind of how that's linked through into kind of European manufacturers and kind of followed into the current trends towards very large grills. As I say, car twitter loves to loves to complain about a, a grill. An oversized grill. Actually, it's interesting. What I think with this is that there's a lot of discussion about how actually oversized grills have been the norm for a long time. Um, I mean, I've certainly got a much smaller grill than anything that BMW currently sells on my car, but not all of it is, fun is functional. A lot of it is, is design related. Mm. This answers a few of the questions in terms of why, why this is happening. And uh, yeah, it's a really good read. So, yeah, uh, link is in the show notes. We had the part one of the Peter Stevens thoughts um, quite a few weeks ago, so we thought we'd bring part two to you, and it is a cracking read. Uh, and it, it do, as Alex says, it does make the point that there are some things that perhaps we're happy to kick that we may need to just instead of using our gut reaction, just understand a bit better. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> 
Right, I'm going to take us to the list of the week, and this one is from Top Gear, and the 19 vans you never knew you wanted. Well, no, I did know that I wanted them, but there <laughs> we are. Alex, out of all of these, is there one that particularly yes. leaps out to you that you go, mm-hmm, that's the one for me? Uh, see, I'm sat here and I can see a Hot Wheels dashi van looking down on me, so for me it has to be the Dodge Conversion van. It's uh, <laughs> very, very cool. That's an excellent choice. Oh, there are many in here. Um, oh, it, it's it's tricky because I'd be happy with with virtually all of them. Actually, <laughs> I think the one I'll pick because I did notice this it was mentioned that there is a company that has actually signed up, and I can't remember who it was. I'll have to find the the link on Twitter. But the London Electric Vehicle Company and their van from the taxi. I just think it makes a ton of sense, uh, particularly because of the, sh- the the turning circle, because of the hybrid and electricness of it. Uh, and I just think it breathes life into LEVC. It gives them another wing in which to to sell vehicles because there's only so many taxi drivers out there. <laughs> and so, you know, it's quite a capped market, whereas commercial vehicles does open it up more. Uh, and yeah, I, I still think the family hauler as an ex-taxi is a possibility here, but I, I don't know whether they could they could actually do that. But it, yes, I quite like that. I, I like Cam- that a lot. Camper vans. Yes, I've seen micro, you know, smaller camper vans. It makes more sense in the UK than the big ones. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, do click on the show notes and see if you agree with us. Uh, don't forget to let us know if you do or don't, uh, and which you would pick. Oh, no. Honestly, I'd have any of them, really, <laughs> any of the 19. Uh, it's, it's preaching to the choir a little bit, this, isn't it? Because the yes. two of us are quite happy driving around, uh, yeah, in something yeah. more van-sized. Absolutely. Right, well, something that is perhaps a little bit outside our comfort zones, then, for the Anne Finally. Yeah, and finally is a, is a treat for your ears that probably warrants uh, popping a set of headphones in. It's uh, raw onboard, onboard footage of British driver Robin Shoots, uh, the winning the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb in uh, this year. Uh, an average speed of 70.88 uh, miles per hour and a total time of 10 minutes, 9 second, 9.525 seconds, which is heroic in itself if it wasn't for the fact that he was also driving headlong into fog in something that looks like basically the skeletal structure of a car. So yeah, it really, it really is. Um, it really is worth worth absorbing this one. It's uh, it's a heck of a watch, as as Pike Peak run, Pike's Peak runs tend to be. So uh, yeah, impressive stuff. It's definitely not a problem of him hiding the sun or trying to keep the glare out. It was more trying to stay on the road thanks to the wet and the and where does the road go? <laughs> yes, exactly that. It's as if it's not challenging enough at the best of times. It's uh, yeah, it's driving straight through a cloud is uh, an added layer of uh, complexity for it. <laughs> Just turned, turned it up to turned up the difficulty level there. But it is an amazing, amazing drive, and congratulations for clinging on, let alone winning it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd be worried drive pottering up there in the family car in uh, conditions like that. Let alone, uh, as I say going up in a skeleton of a car yeah too true right that brings us to the end of the show uh one parish note anyone who hasn't seen it alan has landed safely in the u.s and has been enjoying murica over the uh 4th of july weekend he's fine uh hopefully he moves into his new abode this week 
don't know if he'll be with us next week. I know he'll be trying everything he can to make sure he is, but do bear with us while America opens its arms to him and welcomes him in. We still haven't worked out a timing of when we're going to record or anything like that, so things may well change on when the show comes out, when it's recorded and this sort of stuff, but we'll keep you updated as soon as we know something ourselves. Uh, I want to say thank you so much to Alex for leaping in and putting up with quite a few technical difficulties in the background of things <laughs> being so accommodating with his time and everything else really do appreciate it. i know you're a very busy chap who's doing lots of articles and stuff like that thank you so much for for stepping in and making sure that the listeners don't just listen to me drone on or complain or whinge about particular subjects no problem was always happy to help and uh, yeah some of those technical problems were from this end as well so i can't really say very much <laughs> okay on that note that is the end of the show so don't forget that between now and next time you can give us any feedback and share your thoughts with the show at motion podcast on twitter on instagram on the book of faces and also via the contact page of motoringpodcast.com the hub of all our activities do remember as well that you can support us financially via Patreon. Please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing. Alex, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you and say particularly thank you uh, this week? The best place to get hold of me is on Twitter. My uh, username is Alex Grant UK. I have one on Instagram as well with a, an underscore between the, the Grant and the UK. Um, but the username is otherwise the same. But yeah, Twitter is probably the best place to get in touch. Excellent. I'm sure people will if they don't already. Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is via the contact page. Oh, no, I'm back on Twitter now. You can use Twitter. If you search for Crack Windscreen, you'll find me there. Sorry, I'd forgotten I was back on. I've been chatting away for quite a while now. Um, so you can find me there. Uh, if you want to get in touch with Alan and just check on how he is, if you, again, look via Twitter where he is at AJP Bradley, that's B-R-A-D-L-E-Y for all of those who need it spelled out. We'll be back soon, but until then... I've been Andrew Clues. I've been Alex Grant. And safe motoring.